0: Uh, Would you open your Bibles to Isaiah 58? Isaiah 58, and I'll read the whole chapter. Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honourable. If you honour it not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the word of the Lord has spoken. The word of the Lord has spoken, and Lord, we pray that you would cause us to hear it. We pray that your spirit would work in our lives, uh, in our hearts this morning as I preach from your word. Um, We pray as that song said that you would teach us true humility and holy reverence and full obedience, that our faith might rise and our eyes would see your majestic love and authority. Uh, Lord, we pray that your word would touch our hearts this morning as I preach it, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you might have heard the joke about asking God for patience. It's uh, often said that you should be careful about asking God for patience because he doesn't answer that prayer in the way that you want. Instead of giving you patience, he puts you in all sorts of situations that will push your buttons and test your patience and stretch your patience and make you more angry. You asked for patience, but instead God gave you more opportunities to get frustrated. You asked for patience, and God reminded you just how impatient you already are. Um, most of the time I've heard people use this kind of reasoning. It's been in relation to patience, but it's not really just limited to that virtue. Um, you can see the same pattern in happening in all sorts of other areas. Uh, maybe you... Uh, ask God that you want pr- to, to help you pray more. Um, so instead of uh, giving, freeing up your calendar so that you can have more time to pray, he piles on your demands so that you feel the neglect of prayer even more. Or maybe you ask God to be more gentle and so he brings you the most belligerent, argumentative narcissist to lock horns with or maybe you ask God to be more humble and i by the way i hope you did ask God for that in the last week after we heard God say that i dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit isaiah 57:15 i hope that you heard that and prayed that God would make you more humble but perhaps what you found like the israelites is that God's answer was like Isaiah 58, verse 1. Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, and to the house of Jacob their sin. Perhaps when you try and humble yourself before God, you find yourself in this position that God rejected, like Israel found where God rejected their attempts at humility. Uh, You'll see in your bulletins, that's the first point that we're going to see this morning. God rejected Israel's attempts at humility. Uh, Because evidently, after the message that Isaiah gave them, they made some positive moves. We see that in verses 2 and 3. God listed Israel's piety in verse 2. They seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near God. How good does that sound? Imagine a nation that did that. Now, it's probable that God's being a bit sarcastic in this verse, but there's obviously at least some truth to it. And especially as verse 3 says, Isaiah uh, Israel responds to God, as it were, Why have we fasted and you see it not? They were fasting. They were humbling themselves. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? And once again, in in light of the previous chapter where it was all about how God receives those who humble themselves before him, how he receives the humble with grace and favor, Israel really seemed pretty justified in asking, what's going on? Why are you rejecting us, God? Well, there's a a pretty clear and simple answer that God gives in the rest of verse 3 and on into verse 4. He says, Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. And so in this response, God R- pulls back the curtain on Israel's show of humility. It's not true humility, is it? It's a childish manipulation. It's, it's like a child uh, saying to their parents, you know, why, why don't you love us? Well, you're not actually, you don't actually believe that your parents don't love you. It's because you're not getting your own way. And, of course, this is evidenced by the way that they treat each other. They, you fast only to quarrel and fight and hit with a wicked fist. Of course, God's not going to listen. It's a mockery. And there's strong irony in these verses as well as God goes on to talk about the, the actual hungry because he says you know you're you're going hungry as an act of piety but neglecting the people who actually go without food not by choice but because they can't afford it they were clothing themselves in sackcloth but neglecting to actually clothe the naked they were humbling themselves before god but neglecting to care for the afflicted Uh, behind which is the same root word. Poor and afflicted and humble are the same words in Hebrew. And God says you are trying to be humble, but you're ignoring the actual humble, the humiliated, the afflicted. Verse 5, Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Uh, now it might be worth at this point making a few comments on fasting uh, because it's, it's not something we really think about much today. Most Christians I know don't fast or don't talk about it at the very least. Uh, most of the people I hear about talking about fasting uh, mean it in sort of a, a health thing, Um, Or maybe it's a a way of freeing up the calendar to talk with God. Uh, But the way that Isaiah is talking about it here, the the, the, um, associations that he's making, we see that that for Israel, fasting is a way of humbling themselves. It's going hungry and afflicting oneself to make yourself associate with the poor and gain God's pity as we saw last week God has grace for the humble those who are brought low and if that's a if that's done out of a reflection that your heart is as impoverished as you are making yourself what a good thing that is but that's not what Israel are doing here so God asks Israel these questions. And he says, is fasting does fasting mean humbling yourself? Does fasting mean afflicting yourself? Does fasting mean sitting in the ashes and wearing sackcloth? And you kind of read that and go, well, yes. Surely that's what fasting what like that's by definition what fasting is, right? Are those things good and pleasing to the Lord? Is that the kind of humility that God delights in? Yes. Because it certainly doesn't sound like God's thinking that. But like as a reader, as an Israelite reader reading this, like you have to go, yes, surely that's what fasting is. God says no. Uh, Verses 6 and 7. Is not this the fast that I choose, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? True fasting, true humility, God says, is not evidenced just by personal piety, or or merely the way that you posture yourself before God. See, if it's not accompanied by a, a, a selfless attitude, it's not real humility. I remember how Paul describes humility in in, uh, Philippians chapter 2. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humility is about selflessness as much as it is about anything else. God rejected Israel's attempts at humility because it was merely outward piety. Now, God's rejecting of Israel's attempts at humility is not an indication that God is being harsh or cruel or untrue to his word. He's not a harsh taskmaster. Instead, it's about Israel's failure to come to God rightly. And as the rest of the chapter is going to go on to show, in fact, the major bulk of the chapter it shows that if Israel really do turn and change and obey God, he will gladly welcome them and bless them. Uh, which leads us to our second point this morning, God reiterated his promises from the covenant. Uh, verses six to the end are framed in sort of three if-then statements. If this happens, if you do this, then this will happen. And each of the the if statements, calls on Israel to return to what they should have been living like under the Old Testament law, under the covenant. And each of the then statements reiterates God's promises to them that he had already given them under that same covenant. Um, So God reminded Israel that right living before him involves not taking advantage of others, as we see in verse 6. Uh, it involves being kind and generous to the poor. That's what verse 7 describes. Uh, verse 9b talks about prejudices and systems of oppression. Uh, verse 10 about self-sacrifice, pouring yourself out for the hungry. Uh, verse 13, serving God rather than serving your own interests. And, and again in verse 13, delight in the worship of God. Call the Sabbath a Delight. And the holy day of the Lord honourable. Uh, and you see, of course, how all of that contrasts strongly with the piety that inverted commas, the piety that which is really self seeking, uh, and the oppression that they were showing to each other in verses three to five. God says, Pour yourself out. See serve him from the heart and serve others as well. And if you live like that, God says, if Israel lived like that, they He will He will live with them to bless them. Uh, that's the focus of this section. The, the, the then statements. Uh, God's reiteration of His covenant promises. Uh, again, notice how this turns the situation the problem that their sin had caused in the previous verses turns it completely around in verses one to five their sins displeased god uh, so he rejected them and he refused to listen to their prayers but in verses eight and nine that's completely turned on its head Uh, instead of their sins displeasing god their righteousness will shine forth like the dawn instead of god rejecting them he will be with them As he says, the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. And instead of refusing to listen to their prayers, God says, you shall call and the Lord will answer. Uh, From then on, God continues to build on that. Uh, In verses 10 and 12, he talks about how the blessing of God's favor will lead to the restoration of Jerusalem. Uh, and what a wonderful promise that would have been to the returning exiles uh, who, had, who returned from the exile that Isaiah prom- prophesied earlier in the chapter, in the, in the book. Uh, God says he will uh, satisfy your desires in the scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose, do not, whose waters do not fail and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. And even more than that, God says he will bring them joy in verse 14. You shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See, these verses show us, remind us that God is committed to his people. God's covenant is with his people. Uh, Paul said, God will not reject his people whom he foreknew. Uh, and this is where the idea of covenant becomes so crucial. Uh, a covenant uh, is a—it's uh, not a word that we use much, but it's a, a very important biblical word. Uh, it's a lasting, legally binding relationship that's centred around love. It has both of those things. Legally binding relationship, but also love. It's a commitment to love a legal oath to fulfill promises of love and care. And this is the characteristic way that God deals with his people uh, because he is committed to his people and so his covenant promises of love stand. Uh, this is what we read before from Leviticus 26 isn't it if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them i will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you i will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you and i will walk among you and will be your people and uh, sorry and be your god and you shall be my people uh, later in that same chapter in Leviticus 26 he talks about uh, after Israel sinned and fall under his judgment he says if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity then I will remember their, my covenant I will not spurn them neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them for I am the Lord their God But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. And so here in Isaiah, God reiterated his promises from the covenant. The promise to receive all those who turn to him in humble repentance. But the question that's been hanging over this whole chapter is what is, is true humility? What is true repentance? Because we've seen from the opening verses, haven't we, that it's not just fasting or or, or making a humble posture before God. It's not even just about outward piety or, or seeking to know God and what he says. And so we need to ask, what is true repentance what is true humility Uh, perhaps from these last verses this second section you've uh, got the impression that it's obedience to the law and that would be a fair guess but as we consider how this story plays out in the rest of scripture then we'll see that's not the case and as we uh, come to our final point we will see how God recalibrates our understanding of repentance. Uh, And here we will see what this all means for us as God recalibrates our understanding of repentance. Uh, Well, as as it turns out in scripture, Israel listened and did what Isaiah told them to. Uh, When they returned from exile, uh, as we read in Nehemiah, Nehemiah was a couple of hundred years after Isaiah uh, and he uh, wrote about the returning ex- exiles from babylon um, and as we read from nehemiah 5 nehemiah went to great lengths to make sure the returning exiles treated the poor justly how good is that he's listening to what this passage says in fact he probably even alludes to this passage in the way that he talks in that chapter uh, on until the time of jesus uh, and indeed, until now, various factions of Jews went to great lengths to obey God's law. Uh, most famously, of course, the scribes and Pharisees worked very hard to obey the law of God. But as we read from Matthew chapter 23, Jesus explained to them that God was still not pleased. Because all of their changes were only skin deep. Uh, And we read some of the seven woes that he pronounced against the scribes and Pharisees. You clean the outside of the cup, Jesus said, but not the inside. I mean, what good is that? Like, the inside is what you want to be clean. That's what you're going to drink out of. Uh, Jesus says you're like fancy painted tombs. It's pretty to look at, but... Who wants to look at or even think about what's underneath the veneer of pretty painting on the outside of a tomb? You'd hate to see what's inside. Yet God looks at the heart, as we know. Um, In C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, one of the central characters, Eustace Uh, is a a human boy, but he gets turned, over the course of the book, he gets turned into a dragon uh, on account of his greed and selfishness. Um, And near the end of the book, he comes face to face with the great lion Aslan, the Jesus figure in these books. And Aslan explains uh, that to be restored to his human form, Eustace must remove his dragon form, which is covering him. So he used to so base, he tears at his skin and pulls the skin, the dragon 's skin off and steps out like a like a lizard or like a snake, only to find that there is that was just one layer. there is still a full dragon form underneath, undeterred, he tries again, he pulls the skin off this dragon and steps out. And is still a dragon. Again and again he tries. But all his efforts can only make superficial change. And he is still a dragon. What we and Eustace find is that he must acknowledge to Aslan that he is unable to remove his dragon form. And it's only when Aslan, with his claws, tears through the dragon form. With great tears and causing excruciating pain to Eustace. But they are deep tears that, that pull right to the core of this dragon and slay it. So that Eustace may step out a human boy once more the same was true for the israelites and the same is true for us that all of our best efforts to tear away at our sin at our dragon skin can only remove a layer and reveal the same things hiding underneath they can only superf- all our best efforts can only superficially deal with our sin and in the end, there will be no real difference. And like Eustace, we must come to the end of ourselves to find the heart of true humility. True humility, true repentance, starts with acknowledging to God that our sin, and in that our sin, is. Unchangeable, we, we can't change our sin. We have no ability in ourselves to please God. Uh, this is why, of course, at the start of the chapter, God told Isaiah to declare to my people their transgressions. It's not because God is harsh or cruel or because he wants to make us feel bad, it's because that is where humility. That is where we learn humility when God convicts us of our sin. And that's when we learn that humility. That's where we find God's comfort. Remember, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. And so the gospel brings grace, brings comfort when God, when we feel our sin. When God humbles us on account of our sin, that is where we find the grace of Jesus. Like I said at the start, don't ask God for patience because he'll show you how impatient you really are. On the contrary, welcome God's conviction. We should be glad that God shows us how impatient and how otherwise sinful we really are because that is where we experience the gospel. It is in our our confession of sin that we find that God dwells with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Now, none of this invalidates what God said about the right way to live before him. On the contrary, it empowers those verses, verses 6 and 7, 9 and 10 and 13. See, it's only a person who knows that they're forgiven of their sins who would would set people free that they could otherwise take advantage of, like verse 6 talks about. It's only a person who knows that all they have and are is a gift from God, only that kind of person would pour themselves out as a gift to others, like verse 10 says. Only a person who knows that they can't and don't need to do anything to earn favour with God. Only that kind of person will delight in the Sabbath, the rest that God promises his people. Only a person who knows that God died for them will truly not live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so this is my friends, is the true humility that we should long for, the humility that God delights in. It's humility where we acknowledge our sin to God and rejoice in the grace of God, excuse me, that covers our sin. We should seek humility where we see ourselves as the least of all the saints and long to hold forth that grace because it's our only hope and it's the only hope of others around us as well. We should seek humility where we boast no merits and claim no rights, but instead pour ourselves out for the benefit of others. And so, my brothers and sisters, welcome God's conviction. Rejoice in being humbled and brought low under the hand of God because that is the way to find Christ as your all in all, to find the cross as your only hope, and to find the grace and mercy of God as your deepest and dearest joy. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are a gracious God, a God who delights to dwell with the humble and lowly, who gives grace to the humble but resists the proud. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would humble us under your mighty hand so that at the proper time you may exalt us. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would work in us true humility, not superficial humility, but true humility that acknowledges our sin and our utter inability to please you. Lord, we pray that Christ would be our all, that he would be our joy and that you would show us that he is our only hope. And so it's in his name we pray. Amen.